Hello, folks, and welcome back to our midweek Bible study podcast. Uh, remind you, as I like to do here at the beginning, that you know if you have questions about the Bible, whether they are questions about passages we have already gone over, whether they're what we're reading right now, or whether there are things that are coming up in the future, or even if it's just a question you have always wanted to have answered, uh, you can you can send those questions in. Email me at forest.divini at asburycc.org, uh, or just, you know, flag me down in church one Sunday and ask me the question, and I'll put it in here. Um, I'm going to spend the next two weeks on this podcast, at least, and, and possibly more, going over First and Second Kings. Um, you know, as we're going through the Bible readings, I'm, I'm really going to try as much as I can to cover as much of that material as possible between my Sunday morning sermons and these midweek podcasts. And so uh, this coming week, I'm going to finish up preaching on the Psalms. Then I'm going to preach on Acts for a bit. And then uh, in between that, I'm going to be sort of doing the podcast on the Old Testament passages that we're reading. So that's what we're doing. First um, and Second Kings, uh, kind of like First and Second Samuel, was originally sort of one book. And actually, interestingly enough, it was originally... Not only were First and Second Kings one book, they were actually part of the same book as First and Second Samuel. Um, you'll notice, right? They, they all sort of are, are carrying on the same story of the the kingdom of Israel before its downfall. So th- these two books here, First and Second Kings, this is a very this is very much an epic. Um, it, it chronicles like five hundred years. Of Israel's history. So just think about that for a minute. You've got these two books, and, and at some point they'll move along really quickly, but but by the time you get to um, the exile to Babylon at the very end of 2 Kings, it's been 500 years since King David died. And then you have, you know, 70 years in the exile. And about another 400 years after that, before Jesus comes along, roughly. I mean, these are all rough estimates. But just stop for a minute to think about the fact that David's story is taking place almost a thousand years before the birth of Christ. That's a long time. But then think about this, right? It's been 2,000 years for us since Jesus was alive. I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by these timelines and, and sort of the scale of the things that we're talking about. So even though these seem like old stories and, and there's a thousand years of history between David and Jesus, that's still only half as long as the period between Jesus and our modern day. Wild stuff to me. I, I'm, you know, the, the older stories in the Old Testament go back significantly further, right? Abraham might have been, has, might have been further separated from Jesus than we are. It's hard to tell. But Moses wasn't. So by Jesus' day, though, these are these are ancient stories. These are ancient history. For for Americans, I, I think I like to point this out because our own 
history as a nation really doesn't go back that far, right? I mean, like as the United States of America, we've existed for over 200 years, and we'll come up on the 300th anniversary of our birth as a nation during my lifetime, most likely, unless I die very young. And, and you know, the first sort of European settlements here in, in North America happened between four to 500 years ago. So think about that, right? The, the, just the time frame that we're dealing with. These are very long. Like the, the, the point here is you, you see, as you read through these books, you see God working in Israel's history. You see sort of the arc of what he's doing. But it's happening over centuries. God works over these very long time frames and to the individuals living in them, it probably seems quite often like God is not doing anything because he's working so slowly. Let's put this in perspective, right? So there's 500 years between the death of King David and the downfall <coughs> of the kingdom of Israel. These two little books in your Bibles cover as much time as has passed for us since Christopher Columbus first sailed to the New World. It's actually been a bit more than 500 years since that. Think of all that has happened in that time frame. We think of Christopher Columbus as ancient history almost for us. We, we think of the settling of the... You know, if you ever go back and, like, and read about sort of the initial settling and conquest of the Americas by Europeans, you get a sense of just how, how long ago that was, how easy it has been for historical records to slip through the cracks, and, and therefore how little we know. Just imagine, imagine all of the incredible history that is not contained in these books. All the stories, all the ways that God saved people and healed people and led people that are not actually written down in these books. 500 years is a lot of time. And we are reading about this 500 year period of history with thousands of years in between. You're stepping back into another world and we only have a very small slice of it. But it is a very interesting slice. So, 1 Kings begins with the death of King David. And then it will detail the life and the reign of Solomon for the first 11 chapters, which is what we're reading right now. Now, you can't really understand the book of Kings without reading the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason is, uh, you will read in the coming weeks in 2 Kings, there's this story when King Josiah is on the throne of Judah, and the priests come to him, and they say, King Josiah, we found this book in the temple, and it looks like it's a bunch of laws we're supposed to follow. They found the book of Deuteronomy in it. 
Imagine this, the temple was so dirty and cluttered, they lost the Bible. Can you picture that for a minute? The church is so dirty, you lose all the Bibles. We don't know. We don't know when that book was misplaced. It seems reasonable to assume it happened very early on, possibly even under David and, and, or Solomon. Because under their reign, there is really not much mention in any detail of God's law, but we have no real idea. What we do know is, at some point, the book of Deuteronomy gets lost. And that's significant. We tend to think of Leviticus as the book of the law. But it's not really. It's like the textbook for the priests to use, but the book of the law that was most influential for Jewish people then and now is Deuteronomy. This is Moses' last sermon to the people. This is where he takes the laws written down in Leviticus and teaches the people of Israel how to apply them to their daily life. So Deuteronomy is much more influential to Jewish faith, and particularly to ancient Jewish faith, than Leviticus is. And under King Josiah, they rediscovered the book of Deuteronomy, and this initiates these sweeping religious reforms under King Josiah's rule. And the implication, of course, is that the preceding kings went astray and, and didn't follow the law because they didn't have the law to follow. Very interesting uh, dynamic. You'll, you'll read that in a, in a few weeks. Um, but the point is, those reforms influence the way the entire book of First and Second Kings is written. Because, of course, it's written after that time period. And so the whole book is sort of saturated with the theology from Deuteronomy, and each king is evaluated based on their faithfulness to the Deuteronomic law. That's the standard. Each king is given the honor of ruling the people and the means of ruling the people, and if they abuse those things, they suffer and the people suffer which is straight out of Deuteronomy. Which is, of course, the book that has the provisions in it for what a king can and cannot do. There's the, that's where the laws are. Now, the lesson there for you and I as Christians is this. Each Christian has been given all that we need for salvation in God's word. But if we don't abide in the grace of God bestowed to us, it's to our peril and the peril of those around us. Right? God gives the, the gifts and the graces that he gives. God gives us the ability and the means to be his people. And it's up to us to use those wisely. But more on that next week. Just know that is a major theme of these books. How God's people are using what he gives them. So, the first 11 chapters of First Kings, which is what we're reading right now. These are the last days of the United Kingdom of Israel. So 
First Kings opens with this story of uh, David as this sickly old man, right? He can't stay warm. And so they, they bring this young maiden in. And it's this really odd story, right? Because she's supposed to keep him warm, right? She's supposed to lie in bed with him and keep him warm. And the story actually makes a point of pointing out that David didn't sleep with her, right? He didn't have sex with this woman. And that's actually not so much about pointing out David's virtue or his chastity as pointing out his frailty and feebleness as an old man. Uh, So it gets a... You know, it's a, it's a little on the nose, but here's this story of this old king who's old and sickly, can't keep himself warm no matter how many clothes they put on him. And his only interest in this beautiful young woman is as a source of warmth in his bed. Um, they're making a deliberate point. Right? This is the ancient world where, you know, sex and sexuality were not really taboo conversations at all. They were very much part of the public life. And, and the point is, here's our king. He's lost his strength. He's lost his virility. And, and there's the underlying question behind it is, what are we going to do? All Israel is wondering what to do now that the greatest leader in their history is in decline. So the story then moves on to Adonijah, who is David's oldest son. Now, normally the throne would be his, right? That's typically how these things go. The oldest son gets the throne by birthright. Except, in this story, God does not give Adonijah his blessing to be king. And David does not give him his blessing to be king. So he assumes the throne without ever actually praying about it, without seeking the permission of God, without seeking the permission of the current king of Israel who is still very much alive. He has forgotten that the throne of Israel is not like others. The kingship is granted by God, not by birthright. And so he falls. The prophet Nathan, along with Bathsheba, will approached David and prompt him to anoint Solomon as king. And it turns out immediately the people love Solomon. They're thrilled. So Solomon has not only the official uh, legal claim to the throne because he's been named as the heir by the living king, but he also has the backing of the people, which means really there's nothing Adonijah can do at this point to, to, to beat him. He's lost. So Solomon assumes the throne, and for the first time in Israel's history, there's a peaceful transfer of power. Now, you can make the case maybe that David's rise to the throne was peaceful, but but only because he didn't directly kill Saul. Saul still died in battle, and David assumed the throne. And there was actually a civil war after David assumed the throne, immediately. There is no civil war here. I mean, there will be some people who die, but there's no widespread conflict here. Solomon assumes the throne. It's a peaceful transfer of power. And I can't emphasize enough how unusual that is in the ancient world. And it's actually still pretty unusual today, by the way. 
Um, we, we really, in the United States, we take for granted that every four years we have a peaceful transfer of power. And we don't understand how privileged we are to experience that because that is not the norm in most places. Still today, it's not the norm. In the ancient world, it was very much not the norm. In the ancient world, every time a king died, there was going to be some amount of fighting over who took the throne, even if he had named one of his sons as the heir to the throne. Almost always, there would be a a coalition of noblemen or military leaders who would attempt to overthrow the new king and take power for themselves. It was extremely common. So this is this is unique. This is special. Solomon assumes the throne and his rise to power is incredible. And under his reign, Israel will achieve a level of power and influence and prosperity that it has never experienced before and it will never experience again. Its borders expand beyond their wildest dreams. They are a wealthy nation. You know, at one time they were slaves to Egypt. Now they are forming strategic alliances with Egypt through marriage, which will cause some problems for Solomon later on. But the point is, this is a massive meteoric rise to global power for Israel. It is incredible. So finally, Solomon will build the temple. And more than anything else, this marks him out as the greatest king of Israel. He is the one who builds the temple, and the temple will become the religious, economic, and cultural focal point for the Jewish people until it's destroyed by the Babylonians 500 years later, and it will never be duplicated. The second temple that's built after the exile pales in comparison to the original. In fact, uh, I can't remember if it's in Ezra or Nehemiah, but in one of those two books, both, both of those books discuss the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple after the exile. And in one of them, and I can't remember which one, but in one of them, it, they, they are, they're some of the old timers who've come back, some of the people who were alive in Jerusalem before the exile. So these are very old men by this point because the exile lasted 70 years. But it describes them looking at the new temple that's been built and weeping, weeping because it is so far below the glory and the beauty of the first temple that their hearts just can't bear it. So this temple that Solomon built, it is incredible. And there is this moment where God's presence visibly descends upon the temple, and it's implied that it stays that way for the duration of Solomon's reign. That you could look toward the temple and see that God was there. Imagine that. Imagine. Imagine having that there all the time. This whole period is depicted as this era of new creation when the people are finally living as God intended and God has come to dwell with them just as he did in the garden. These are Israel's glory days. And they will always be remembered as such. In fact, the Pharisees of Jesus' day have Solomon's reign in mind as they are preaching about God's kingdom. That's what they're picturing. They're thinking God's kingdom will be like the days of Solomon. If you are an Israelite, this is a great time to be alive. The kingdom is rich, and the kingdom is at peace. There are no wars happening during Solomon's reign. Everyone's getting wealthy. Everyone's faithful, right? There is no idolatry in the nation. 
things are finally going the way that God meant for them to go. It's a good time. But the golden age will not last. Solomon's death marks their end. But that's next week's story. My friends, I had no questions sent in this week, so we're going to end it there. And I will talk to you next week, continuing the story of Solomon and what happens after his death. Until then, God bless you all.